It's Rick Jones, the captain, coming back to you from the bridge. Can you believe that summer is half over and we're still dealing with the consequences of the coronavirus? It was still winter when this damn thing started, and now we've been through spring and deeply into summer. We've talked a lot about how organizations have had to pivot during this pandemic, and my guest angler today, Anna Slav Harwood, will discuss how her charity, the Mike Slav Foundation, has adapted to the virus. We'll have another point of view from the soapbox and another great place to eat on the road with Rick when we actually can get back out there to travel and eat out, even though I worry that many of my favorite places to eat may not have survived the virus. One of my favorite places that I have profiled last season from the bridge, Justine's Kitchen here in Charleston, has closed for good. The virus did their business in. We'll just have to wait and see about other places. I recently saw an interview with Danny Myers, the famous restaurateur from New York, on CBS Sunday morning, and he talked about how important the restaurant industry is to our country and to the economic vitality of our country. And he said something I found interesting. He said more people work in restaurants than work in the automotive industry and the airline industries combined. There are over 680,000 restaurants in America, and many people believe that as many as 70% of them may not survive the pandemic. It's really, really a shame. That industry is really, really suffering. And our industry, the sponsorship event marketing industry, continues to suffer too. I know so many great people who work in sports and entertainment who've been either laid off or furloughed. So what can we each do to help these folks, our colleagues, our friends, our neighbors out there who are out of work? I've been talking a lot about John Maxwell on this podcast. Recently, in fact, on July the 4th, his father, Dr. Melvin Maxwell, passed away at age 98. John says his dad taught him many things, but here's one of my favorites. Dr. Maxwell said this about encouragement. Encouragement is the oxygen of the soul. How do you tell if someone needs to be encouraged? Well, they're breathing. So the first thing we can do is try to encourage people. Be there to listen to them, to reassure them, to plan with them. You've heard me talk a lot about giving back and our new agency tagline developed by one of our executives, Paul Ogletree. When we get back together, let's give back together. The first give is the gift of time. Find time to reach out to someone in our industry who has lost their job and be an encourager. Secondly, and not to toot my own horn, but we're trying to help salespeople who have lost jobs. Several months ago, I posted uh, a a post on LinkedIn that said, hey, if you're out of work and you can sell, I've got some stuff and we can work out a deal. And I'm now currently working with 21 different individuals who are trying to help us sell. And we're going to give them significant amounts, in fact, the lion's share of the commissions that we make if they can push something across the finish line. So if you're out there today and you're unemployed, You can reach out to me and let's talk about ways we might be able to help each other. 
just send me an email. My email is rick at fishbaitmarketing.com. That's rick at fishbaitmarketing.com, and we'll get back together. Hey, if you have a job today, be thankful. And since you have a job, appreciate it and do the very best you can each and every day. But please find time to help someone else out there who is not so fortunate. Because remember, you meet the same folks on the way up as you do on the way down. I'm going to ask from the soapbox today a simple question. Can we save college sports? We've all seen how schools have responded to their own financial crisis by cutting sports. It both saddens me and alarms me. I'm very saddened for the young people that have worked so hard and trained for so many years only to have the rug pulled out from under them. But I'm alarmed because it seems we could have tried other things first, like a GoFundMe for a specific sport. You may have seen where Bowling Green announced that they were dropping baseball, but a week later, a bunch of fans had gotten together and raised the money to bring it back. Maybe some other schools did that, and I don't know about it, but I haven't seen many. I'm trying to find some corporate sponsors to join me in a movement to scale a GoFundMe campaign to bring back as many sports as we can. Let me know if you want to join the movement, because I do believe we can save these sports. And that's my view from the soapbox. My guest today is my dear friend, Anna Slive Harwood. Anna's dad, the late Mike Slive, was a dear friend and a mentor to me and served for many years as commissioner of the Southeastern Conference. Before Mike passed away from prostate cancer, he created the Mike Slive Foundation to raise awareness for prostate cancer testing and research and to find a cure and better treatments. Anna had a terrific career in sports management, working on various big events like the Final Four and spending time at the Colonnade Group in Birmingham before taking the helm at the Mike Slive Foundation. She's got that combination we all appreciate, beauty and brains, but more importantly, has the heart of a servant leader. Let's welcome Anna to the bridge. Good morning, Anna. Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks for being with me today. I want to start, um, you know, when you're an only child of what I call a legendary figure, um, you, you know, how do you, how did you start, you know, coming out of college? How did you start kind of, you know, you know, forging your own path? Um, well, it's actually, it's an interesting question because I came out of college as most young people are headstrong. I thought I had all the answers and knew everything and had wanted to have absolutely nothing to do with my father's career in college sports. And um, I wanted to be a professional photographer and travel around the world. And of course, I realized after spending months and weekends working for a photographer doing weddings and bar mitzvahs that this definitely was not my calling and had to pivot. But it took me, gosh, it took me almost into my late 20s to realize that all of his connections in college sports were my family. 
And those were the people that I knew and the people that I respected. And as I got older, of course, I believed my father got a lot wiser. And um, It's amazing how that happens, I, isn't, isn't it? Isn't that funny? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. there was a Mark Twain quote about yeah. that. You yes. know, the older I got, the wiser my father became. Yes. Um, but it, it really just, it, it, I struggled for a while trying to figure out what my path was. And then I realized that that was where I wanted to be. And I wanted to not necessarily work by his side, but I wanted to be part of college athletics and the relationships that I had and the people I knew um, just enhanced that desire for me. So I actually went back to grad school um, after about five years at a company called Arthur Anderson, which is no longer some, some people who listen are probably old enough to remember the Enron thing and all that. So I tell people I felt like I got paid to get my MBA going to work at a major global company like that right out of college. And I was part of their marketing group. Um, I had no idea how to do an audit. I was not a financial person, but it was an incredible experience. And then after that, I went to grad school and got a job at Georgia Tech. Um, And I started at the very bottom in the athletic department, just like everybody else, and just sort of found my way. You know, that was my first job when I... uh got out of coaching I had uh, done an internship at Georgia Tech when I was in graduate school at Georgia State and um, I had gotten hired to be an assistant coach uh, and the coach quit and I didn't have a job and fortunately Dr. Homer Rice who was the AD at Georgia Tech and a guy named Norman Airy uh, and Jack Thompson um, all you know said hey Rick come be our marketing director and we'll get you a coaching job next year so we both started our our careers at Georgia Tech, there on the floor. Well, when I started there, it was up in the athletic director suite. It, Dave Brain was the AD. You had um, Bobby. Oh God, now I'm blanking on his last name. Um, he had pulled out of retirement. Bobby and um, Paul Griffin, and I had known Paul from when he had been at USF with my dad, and we'd actually gotten to be friends. And Paul hired me, and I just thought if I could sit up in those rooms with those guys and be a sponge. And I had, you know, collectively all of that AD experience that I could just learn. And, and then, you know, one day I got a call that completely changed my life from a dear friend of mine named Khalil Johnson, who at that time ran the Georgia world Congress center. And I'll never forget it. I was sitting at my little desk in a little corner and he called me and said, do you have any interest in, being the head of the local organizing committee for the men's final four. And I, I mean, again, it's one of those moments where you just, you, you, you I instantly said, um, I think I said, let me think about it for about a minute, but I knew what the answer was. And I remember I called my dear friend, Judy Rose, who has been one of my mentors my whole life. She just recently retired from being a longtime AD at UNC Charlotte. And Judy was one of the first, was the first woman on the men's basketball selection committee. And I called her and I said, they're offering me this gig. And what do you think? And she said, you got to do it. And everybody I knew said, you got to do it. My dad said, if, you know, go for it. I was terrified. I mean, I was young. I didn't know anything. And, um, and I went on to do it. And, and that literally was one of the, the, the pivotal turning points of my professional career. Well, I think one of the things you realized is that um, a whole lot of your um, knowledge and relationships that you had paid off because that is a very complex. People think it's easy to put on a Final Four. <laughs> oh no, 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 oh, no, man. no, no. There's so many moving parts. Yeah. Um, and and I was so young. You know, when I look back now, and I, I was so young, and I had, I had no idea what I was doing. But the thing that 
my dad used to always say to me, whenever I was evaluating any opportunity in life, but mostly professional, he'd say, Anna, are you set up to succeed? And I always thought about that because I was surrounded by an incredible group of people. And I remember meeting who was then my board president, a gentleman named William Pate. And William had been the head marketing officer at at what was then Bell South. William now runs the Atlanta Convention and Visitors Bureau. And I had lunch with William and he said, listen, I don't want to get in the weeds. I'm not going to get in your way. You're an operational person. You're organized. Do your thing. But I'm here if you need me. And he was true to his word. And we worked so well together. And I had Khalil and I had Carl Atkins. And I, just, I had this incredible group of people that, that just had my back and made that possible. And I think that's a, that was one of the great life lessons for me, too, was it allowed me to go, you know what? This isn't, I'm not a, so, this isn't a solo journey. This is something that whenever you do anything great, it takes a team of people. Well, it's interesting. Right after that thing, I, I think that's the point where I tried to hire you, and then and then as the song goes, I, you turned around and fell in love, and, uh, <laughs> and you know, and and and, and, and went. And I wasn't and, moving, right? That's right, exactly. And what you know, and yep. so you, you know, you went to Birmingham, and and um, and you went to work at the Colonnade Group at that point. Talk a little bit about that experience. Yeah, well, actually, I went to so I went to work at IMG College first. Okay, and um, Tom Stoltz. That's right. Who, I, I Tom about that. hired me, yep. and um, I worked with Tom and a, a gentleman named Lawton Logan who was there, and Kim Ramsey. And the, the crazy thing about that story is, I was in Atlanta, and um, I said, you know, Tom, I don't want to move. I'll, I'll travel a little bit, but I'm I'm down here, and this is where I need to be near my family. And you know, as you said, fell in love, and the rest was history. But Tom said, yeah, no problem. So it was host communications when he hired me. And I knew Jim Host. I grew up with his daughter. I was so excited to be part of this small family-run business. And three months after he hired me, the announcement came out that we were acquired by IMG College. And Tom, true to his heart, could not tell me at that time because it was a it was a legal issue. So um, I ended up back in big corporate America and, and not exactly what I had thought, but I loved working with Tom. Um, and again, it was a great learning opportunity. And then again, another one of those pivotal moments I'll, I'll, I'll never forget. We were out. I think we were out in Phoenix. It must have been at a bowl game. And um, Robbie Robertson, who is the founder and owner, uh, CEO of Colonnade Group, which is based here in Birmingham, called me, said, let's meet while we're out there. And I thought, OK, maybe he wants to do some sort of deal with IMG College and just wants to help me out. And he offered me a job right on the spot. And he said, I think, I think you can be a great asset. And it, and at that time it was very appealing to me because, you know, for personal reasons, we were, we were trying to start a family and I was on the road all the time with IMG college. And it was, again, just one of those life moments where I had to stop and go, okay, if we're going to do this, I, I need to have a job and a life that's going to allow me the flexibility to do that because, you know, it's, it's a very challenging thing as a woman, whether you're an athletic director or you're working in an athletic department or you're in one of the companies like yours and like Colonnade that is a, you know, sort of a key supporter of a college athletic department. You know, we don't, women don't get a time out. Just, we don't get to take a sabbatical. You have to find a way to balance it all. And I needed that. And that was one of the things that Robbie offered. And um, so I ended up heading over there as a vice president and I was at Colonnade for just about um, five years little over five years. And then you came back to run um, your dad's foundation. Let, let, let's talk about your dad a minute. Uh, he, he was, um, 
he he was a great mentor to me, but but it's a long line. I mean, he he was just he was a mentor to so many people. Uh, he, you know, one of the things I loved about your dad was every time I had a conversation with him, I felt like he added value to me. I mean, he just <laughs> he, he and he had the he had the unique ability. And and I think the only other guy I've ever seen that had the same kind of ability maybe was Bill Clinton to make you feel like you were the only important person in that moment. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, I know a lot of people that, yeah, we've all been to parties where you're having a conversation and everybody's looking around like, who who can I talk to that's better than this guy? (laughs) But, But I never felt that from your dad. I always felt like in the moment, he was in the moment. Uh, talk about talk a little bit about his influence. I mean, obviously he's your dad, and that's yeah. a, that's a different role. But 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 talk a little bit about it. Well, I mean, he he truly was my best friend. I mean, he we were two peas in a pod in terms of the way we we thought, the way we we traveled, the way we did everything. And you know, I I I didn't meet the love of my life until a little bit later. So in my twenties, my dad and I took some trips together. We ended up taking five international trips together. And the first one, I was still working at Arthur Anderson at the time. We went to Paris, just the two of us for 10 days. And I remember saying to my mom before I went on the trip, I don't, I don't think I've ever spent 10 whole days with my dad. Cause you know, when I was a kid, he was, he was gone. He was working. I mean, he was trying to grow and build the, the career. I mean, people don't, don't know about the early years as much as they know him as being the commissioner of the SEC. But I mean, I, I didn't go to the same school twice in two, two years in a row from kindergarten to sixth grade because he moved us all the time because he was finding his path and doing his thing. So I really didn't get to know him until I was in my 20s. And we then just built this unbelievable relationship and we were incredibly close. And I think the thing that I loved about him was, to your point, I mean, he could be a tough guy and he, I'm sure there's stories that athletic directors and people tell you about negotiating and sitting in the room with him and, and he could be tough. But to your point, he was so human and he had this kindness about him and he didn't just remember your name. He remembered your wife's name and your child's name. And, you know, and he loved he loved people and he loved getting to know them. And there wasn't this pretense of like, oh, I'm up here. I'm the commissioner and you work for me. It was like, hey, come in here, sit down. How was your weekend? How's your wife? What What's going on with the kids? And and he just, he connected with people and he always called the SEC a family and everyone that he worked for there felt that way. And he just, he had this, this way about him that people just loved to talk to him. Well, I remember having a conversation with him one day about, uh, you know, I said that uh, there was some criticism about academics uh, in, in the Southeastern Conference. And, and I said, Mike, your universities, many of them are land-grant universities, and their job is to service poor people in their states. We're going to we, we got to quit apologizing for that. I mean, there's, you, you have a diverse set of universities that all have different and he said, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, a, a university has to serve a, a wide range of constituencies. And uh, But it, it, what I liked about conversations with him, they, they were always really, A, intellectual, <laughs> B, thought-provoking, and always had a level of depth. You know, we kind of live in this soundbite, superficial world right now. He, he wasn't that way. 
uh, maybe yeah. there was maybe you know I mean a the, the, his training, but also you know being a lawyer, I think he 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 turned the Rubik's cube over to every side, uh, uh, and he was willing to listen to somebody have a differing opinion, which well, I, which is scary is, today. I mean, Nobody will do that. Going, yeah, <laughs> I was about to say, think about that. The word listen in this day and age is the one thing that I think everybody is realizing we don't do very well. And, you know, having a real conversation without a device in front of you, without any other things going on, is part of what he was incredibly good at. And he was. He was a very intellectual person. He loved, he was an avid reader. He didn't have a lot of other hobbies. He didn't play a lot of golf. He didn't, he didn't play golf at all. He didn't do other things. He loved to read. And he could sit quietly with a good book for an entire day. He had a beautiful screened-in porch on their house here in Birmingham and he would smoke a cigar and he could, he could sit on a Sunday if he didn't have work to do and, and read all day. And the thing I always loved about him, and I, I tell this to, to people, to young people that ask me about him too, you know, he didn't read books about leadership. He read books about great leaders. And so, you know, you go on his bedside at any given time and there would be a book about, you know, a, a, a nonfiction, like a, Tecumseh's biography or anything. He loved Churchill, loved reading biographies, loved reading about leaders. And then you'd have a, a fun fiction book that, you know, a mystery or something. He always says, well, I just, I dabble between the two. And he'd always read two books at once. And he, um, I think reading is something that absolutely changes you. You can, he came from nothing. I mean, my, my grandfather was broke through most of my dad's career. He had a meat market in upstate New York. My father was the first person in his family to ever go to college, let alone law school and get a master's of law. But, I mean, he very much was a self-made man. Well, I, you know, I, I, I think we, we had a conversation earlier today, uh, my producer, Lindsay Collins, and I, about the need to constantly learn something. You know, that we've got a lot of people that just are not, they're not lifetime learners. Um, and your dad certainly was. You know, one of my other heroes is Vince Dooley. I'm, I'm, I'm really close to Coach Dooley. And, and, and what I love about him, he's like your dad. He just reads all the time. I mean, and it's, it's a wide variety of stuff. And then, you know, you think of a guy that was a football coach and athletic director. He's, he's written books. And the books he's written are about gardening because he's a master gardener and military history. <laughs> I don't think he's written a book about football. Um, and it's, um, you know, it's fascinating about that. Well, you, your dad, when he got sick uh, with prostate cancer, he, he did what I think is one of the most noble things. He said, I'm going to try to leave a legacy. And so, you know, I knew that when I had worked with him at the conference, he had gotten really engaged with a charity in Birmingham that was involved with a lot of wounded warrior stuff. I think there's a um, um, a, a center in, in um, Birmingham that did a lot of um, veterans rehabilitation, and 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 I knew your dad had a passion for that. But when he got sick, he really you know decided, hey, we, we I don't want anybody else to get prostate cancer, and so he he, he founded the the Mike Sly Foundation, um, and then you've now, and I think you're the right person, obviously, uh, you've now come on board as the executive director of the foundation. Talk about your dad, his rationale behind the foundation and, and about the foundation's goals. Sure. Well, what a lot of people don't know about my dad's journey with prostate cancer is his initial diagnosis was um, actually when he was still at Conference USA in Chicago in 1996. And he 
battled it for that long. And it, it, what happened when he was here in, at the SEC that people most knew was, was that it got bad and his prostate cancer, because prostate likes to go to bone. That's just the way it metastasizes. It's the type of cancer that it is. And when you have an aggressive form of prostate cancer, like he did, it metastasized to his spine and he didn't know it. The, exactly what happened, and so there were there were some pretty scary moments there that that we were all trying to to deal with, which happened to coincide with the the months um, leading up to and and actually his surgery was the weekend before the launch of the SEC network, which, as you know, was was one of his his most I think biggest legacies at the SEC was was the development and launch of that network. So it was a very challenging time, and there was a um, a lawyer and a friend of ours here in Birmingham, a gentleman named Ed Meyerson. And Ed came to my dad. Actually, I, we came to both of us. We had breakfast with him, sitting in Dad's booth at Salem's Diner, which was his favorite coffee shop hangout. And he said, "I have four grandsons." And I watched, this is Ed, and he said, I watched my father go through prostate cancer, and I don't, I don't want to do this. And nobody's saying anything about this. Nobody's doing it. He said, Mike, you're the commissioner of the SEC. You have a national presence. You're beloved in college athletics as a leader. Let's use you and your resources and your name, and, and let's do this. And, you know, my dad, because he was a very humble man, said, I mean, it was a very tough decision for him to allow us to use his name with this. It was good. It was going to be called something else. And we we really tried to persuade him because we knew that it would instantly give us a national presence and an ability to not only educate and fundraise here in Birmingham, but we could do it all over the country. And so that's how it was was founded. And we aren't even three years old yet. Um, we'll have our third birthday in September next month, which is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. And um, dad was the president of the board when we started and was with us for, for a, you know, that first 18 months and um, really saw the potential of what we could be because we, we came out of the gate. I mean, we, we just charged ahead. I mean, we've been like secretary. We just, we're going the distance and we got the speed and we're, we're not letting up. And at the beginning it was, it was almost like, what do we do? We spent the first almost two years with no staff. It was all volunteers. And it wasn't until um, after my dad's passing that June, when they asked me to be the board president, I said, I, I'd be happy to take over dad's presidency, but we have to, we have to have a strategic plan. We have to bring in a consultant. We got to have a direction because, you know, it's like all those books we all read in grad school. You know, you got to get the right people on the bus. We had the bus. We had the right people on it. We're on the road. We're going in the right direction. But we didn't know which exit to get off at, how long to stay. I mean, we had so many opportunities that we didn't even know how to go and, and we needed a plan. And long story short, what came out of that plan was the need for infrastructure. So that's how I ended up as the executive director. And we have one other full-time employee, a young woman named Emily Capaluto, who happens to be an epidemiologist like her father by trade, which who knew that I would be so lucky to have an epidemiologist on my <laughs> yeah, staff right. right now. You can call me either really lucky or really smart. Um, but you know, it's, it's, I've only been in this role full time since August, so it's just a year this month since last August. But um, it's been it's been an incredible journey. It's been um, it's been hard, you know, because every single day, whether I like it or not, I have to 
embrace what I have to embrace my dad and think about him. But it's also been wonderful because every single day I have to embrace my dad and think about him. And he's in my head with sayings and things of wisdom and he's in my heart. And, you know, I'm sitting here in my, my home office right now and there's pictures of him and I on my desk from our various trips. And so it's, it's an incredible way for us to keep his memory alive on a daily basis as well as do some good. Well, I, I mean, let's talk about doing some good. I mean, number one, you know, I, I had a chance to, as I, I talked to you early or last week, um, I had a chance to spend some time on the phone with Tubby Smith. Um, and, you know, and, you know, Tubby said when, when he got prostate cancer, um, you know, somebody said to him, Tubby, men don't talk about this. I mean, <laughs> you, you need to tell people you have this because then other people will say, whoa. And, and, and Tubby said, then I found out that my best friend from high school had it and he didn't even call me. And he said, I hadn't called him. He hadn't called me. Men don't talk about it. You know, women have done a great job of, of you know, talking about breast cancer. We haven't clearly cured it. And it's tragic that people still die of breast cancer. And But, you know, we've turned October pink and we've made, I think, great strides. But prostate cancer has been almost like silent. I mean, nobody, nobody talked about it uh, and nobody did anything about it until now. Uh, and so you're, you're, you know, trying to turn September blue and trying to raise awareness. Um, and a lot of it is just getting guys to realize you get, just go get tested, go get a blood test, go do the examination. Um, and they don't do it. It's true. I, I tell people all the time, I feel like prostate cancer is where breast cancer was 25, 35 years ago. You know, it, we didn't always have this very open, honest conversation about breast cancer like we do now. But when you have strong, beautiful women like Angelina Jolie going public with her story and being on the cover of People magazine, you know, it, it's this environment where and women are different than men. And I recognize that. But it's an environment where it's become it's actually become popular to be able to be that strong person who has come forward with their story. And we need it to become popular for men. And it's just as challenging for women. I mean, it's, it's you know, if, if you, God forbid, if you have to have your breasts removed, do you feel like less of a woman? I don't know personally, but I've heard stories. And I get for men that there's a machoism and there's a, hey, we're dealing with some things down here. I don't want to talk about this. This is my manhood. I'm not, I can't go public with this. But if we can use college sports and influencers like Tubby Smith and other coaches and media and celebrities that have battled this. And when they come forward and say, guys, this isn't to your point. It's not that big a deal because if you get tested early and you catch it early, it is 100% treatable. My father used to always say, if you actually have symptoms of prostate cancer, it's too late. And it's hard to get men to go to see a doctor when nothing hurts, when they feel fine. But if we can change their thinking and we can have these conversations and we can offer easy testing opportunities like what we had been doing before COVID, we were offering mass testing at basketball games. And we tested you know, hundreds of guys come up five minutes, draw your blood, boom, you're done. And we had, you know, we have incredible support from great coaches like Bruce Pearl, who said, I'm not only going to have be part of this, I'm, I'm going to get tested and I want you to videotape it. And I want you to use me as the, as, the, as the guy to make sure that other people go get checked. And he did it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's stories like that that will help men realize that 
it's something that just like women get their checks every year, they have to get checked every year. And African-American men are 1.6 times more likely to get prostate cancer and twice as likely to die from it. And that's something that, you know, your friend Tubby knows well, because with his platform, he has got to get that message out because men don't, there's a lot of reasons why men don't want to get checked. Some are personal, some are societal, but we need to start moving the needle in the other direction. Well, it's interesting. So you get the job last August and you write a strategic plan and then, you know, what's that uh, old Yiddish? And then we throw it out the window. Yeah, yeah. What's that old, what is that old Yiddish term, uh, man plans and God laughs? Um, That's right. You know, I mean, and so right in the middle of this, boom, here comes COVID-19 and you have to pivot. So let's talk yeah. about how well, you pivoted. Let's just say I've, I've started to write everything in pencil. I've stolen all my daughter's <laughs> pencils. I don't write in pen anymore. That's too good. I love that. I'm, I'm going to so, steal um, that. That's a great line. I love well, that. Well, we, you know, we got very lucky in terms of our scheduling and the hit of COVID, only in that we were not in the middle of something. I heard a lot of stories about organizations that were having events in March and April, and they, I mean, they, they didn't pivot. They pirouetted and they were flying. We had a moment to stop and think, okay, what, what do we need to do? And so there was, there's sort of short-term and long-term. Short-term, we had a 5K race that we did locally called the I'm With Mike 5K that happened in every Father's Day weekend. And we realized that we, we probably weren't going to be able to hold that in June, even though there was, you know, if you remember, which seems like a lifetime ago now, but back in March, there was still some hope that, you know, by June or July, the world was just going to be back to norm, quote unquote normal and we were going to be moving on. So we were, we were trying to figure out what to do with the race. And I can tell you a little more about what we did with that. But we also had our longer term strategy, which you and I had lots of conversations about. Um, to continue what we had started in terms of using college sports and basketball and then coming into football games as an opportunity to offer um, mass testing at these sporting events and using the, the arenas and the, and the messaging that was available to us then. And obviously none of that is going to happen, probably not for the rest of this year and, and well into next year, too. So we've had to pivot the outreach strategy as well as the event strategy. And from an outreach perspective, we're launching a pilot program here in Birmingham in September where we will be going out and offering um, PSA blood test screening. And again, this is where it's um, incredible for us to have an epidemiologist on our staff because Emily is leading all of the outreach. Um, and we're going to see how this program works. And if it is successful here in Birmingham, um, then we'll be able to take that and grow it because one of the things that, that my father always did and a lesson I learned from him was to slow down. And even though people are in a hurry and our world moves so, so fast, taking a moment to think and to listen. And when you read about other leaders, whether it's Kennedy or other people, you know, taking a minute to stop and to think and go, how do we do this and do it right? That has always been something that I try to do for myself personally as the leader of this organization and just to, to do in general for what we, what we have to do. So we did a program, for example, called Block Cancer. It started with one basketball game here at UAB. And then the next year we grew it and it was all of Conference USA participating. And then last year we became national and we had the SEC Big 12 Challenge as part of it. We had schools all over the country as part of it. Almost 30 schools participated. And I love that story because it shows smart, organic, 
strategic growth. And so that's what we're going to do with our outreach program. We're going to start that here in Birmingham this year and let that grow. Well, I'm, I'm wearing, um, proudly wearing my I'm with Mike virtual 5K t-shirt today. Oh, good. Uh, as, we're twins. As, I got mine yeah, on too. Yeah, <laughs> okay. As we're talking about this. And, and look, you had a successful run, but this thing became even more <laughs> successful as a virtual run. Talk, talk about that. So we made the decision to move the run to a virtual run. And we said, we're going to do it over Father's Day weekend. We're going to have people sign up. And, and I, the more I thought about this, the more I realized that we, we need to get this out to everybody, right? We have this network of people within the college sports world, friends, people all over the country. And I said, let's, let's set a goal. We wanted 500 people representing all 50 states. And at first it seemed like a very daunting goal. And then what happened was we created this map and every time someone signed someone up in a state or found a friend and called them and said, Hey, you know, I need North Dakota. Can you sign up? And then we started turning the map blue. And this was, you know, this was into May and June when, when there was a lot of anxiety and a lot of uncertainty in, in the, in the country and in the world about COVID. And I think we just timed it really well with something easy and fun and doable for everybody. Because we weren't sure if sponsors were going to get on board. We weren't sure if people were willing to do it. But what we found was we had more sponsors this year and we had over 600 people sign up. We did get all 50 states. It took a minute to get those last few, but we got them all. And people loved it. And they went for their walk with their family or their run with a friend and and they posted pictures, and we just said, do it anytime over Father's Day weekend. We tried to make it as easy as possible. We shipped people their shirts right to their home, tried to get some messaging out there about prostate cancer, and the response was phenomenal. And you I don't know if we ever wanted to I was going to say, you don't have to close any streets. You don't, exactly. you don't have to get porter potties. You don't, you don't have to right. do any of that. It's yeah. a lot less expense <laughs> on the foundation side, yeah. and it's more visibility. Yeah, much and more impact. It was much more of that peer-to-peer marketing model that everybody talks about in the fundraising world that I'm just learning about. Cause again, I have, you know, I'm learning in this role every single day. I don't have nonprofit experience coming into it. But what I know is that when you have a powerful message and you have a story and you have someone like my dad with his legacy of, of kindness and, and leadership surrounding it, we have all the right ingredients to continue to grow this thing and, and people respond in kind. Well, we, we, we came last year to your Birmingham event, the Beyond Blue event that you had in September, and now you got to pivot it too. So let's talk about yep. what you're going to be doing there. So I have spent a lot of time watching a lot of demos about how to create what was an in-person event into a fully virtual event. This one is a little more complex than the 5K, but the good news is we, we did push it back to November. That event is always in September, but we really needed, we needed a minute for the economy to continue to open up and catch its breath for our sponsors. And we needed a minute to figure out how we're going to do this. But what we're seeing with this, just like the virtual run, is we are getting more response and more participation because it is virtual. And we are going to truly have what I hope is a humongous national event um, where it doesn't matter where you are in the United States or, or literally in the world, where on Thursday, November 12th at 6 o'clock Central, you can pour yourself a glass of wine or whatever your, your prefer, preferred beverage is and, and tune in and watch some pretty incredible people share their stories about prostate cancer and um, make it as simple as possible to, to do the event. 
you know, the auction that we normally do um, is all sports experiences and restaurants, as you know, because you bid on one of our great restaurant packages last year. But, you know, that also has to change. Everything has to change because it's hard to go out to a restaurant here who's struggling to keep paying their staff and ask them to donate something right now. Well, I, I think two things. One, the fact that that uh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree and, and, and one of the great skills your dad had was the, the ability to listen. The fact that you didn't come from the, from the not-for-profit world, you've listened you haven't had preconceived notions that a lot of people have said, no, 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 we've always done it this way. We always got to do it this way. And you've been able to change. But the other thing is, I like the idea of, of, of the pencil. Uh, I mean, you realize even in this event, you're going to find as you plan it, something you thought might work doesn't work as well. Something you didn't even think about may work even better. And the ability to be adaptable. And I think that's going to be essential for charities to going forward, especially, like you said, when people are unemployed and and, and dollars are tight. Uh, yep. But we still got to find a cure for this disease. Um, that's right. And, yeah. So, And the response we saw on the 5K was, you know, it was a $30 registration fee. And we sent people a T-shirt with that. And the response was incredible because not only did people pay the $30, they donated on top of that. Yeah. Just because the screen was there. And what I've realized through this whole process, because I, I go through this personally as well, in a, in a world that we live in right now where we don't have a lot of, we never have really control, but when, you know, there's so much anxiety. Is my kid going back to school? Am I going to have a job? Can I actually go out to eat? Is my mom okay? You know, all these things that that is universal, that we're all feeling with this underlying anxiety caused by COVID is I can control where my dollar goes and the feeling that I get to donate to something that I believe in is a good feeling. And we all need that right now. And so our, my goal with this event is that we make it as simple and engaging user-friendly on, on the, on the viewer side, but also compelling in that you're going to walk away. I don't care if someone can only donate $5, that $5 is just as important as the guy who can donate 5,000. And I think that's what people need to tap into is I'm not saying this is a big event. You have to pay all this money to get there. This is for everybody. And you know what? Even if you can't donate, you can still be part of the event. It's a free event. We just ask that people register. So, you know, there's a lot of different decisions we can make, but you're right. Everything I'm doing is written in pencil and we're, we're learning every day. Well, let's close with this. How can people learn more about uh, the Mike Sly Foundation and the Beyond Blue event? Um, the easiest way would be for people to go to our website. It's mikeslivefoundation.org. And under programs, there's a program tab. You'll see a Beyond Blue one. And there's an entire page there that lists um, all about the event. Our two great co-hosts are going to be Laura Rutledge from the SEC Network and Mike Tarico from NBC Sports. And we're going to have some other pretty big names, none of which I can reveal at this time, but they can do that. And then we also are really trying to grow our social media presence. And we're just at Mike Slive FDN for Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And we do post a lot on there. And that would be a really easy way for someone to get involved as well. Well, you're doing great work. Your dad was always proud of you. I know he's where he is today. He's, he's even more proud. Uh, this is going to be a great legacy. The real legacy is this. You had told me a story before about doing one of the um, 
the screenings and, 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 you know, a guy had a ridiculously high PSA that you probably saved his life. And, and, you know, yeah. we, we, you know, we're never going to know how many lives get changed because somebody got tested and they got tested because y'all facilitated that. And that's a great legacy. Um, it's a legacy we will never, like I said, we'll, we may never know, uh, but I know there are going to be a lot of stories with that going forward. Listen, I really appreciate you being with us today from the bridge. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks, Rick. I've enjoyed being home and cooking a lot of great food. I really like to cook. And I've spent some time cooking some of my favorites like chicken parmesan, um, crab salad, gumbo, paella. But I'm ready to get back on the road with Rick. And one of the first spots will be in Anna's hometown of Birmingham, Alabama. I previously told you that my very favorite restaurant in the whole world is Frank and Party Stitt's Highlands Grill in Birmingham. But today I have a hankering for another legendary Birmingham restaurant, Nicky's West. Nicky's is the classic meat and three Southern buffet. They serve breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but I'm partial to that lunch buffet. They've got killer fried chicken, fried catfish, country fried steak, baked ham. Hey, where do you start? And then they have miles, and I mean miles, of vegetables. Mac and cheese, green beans, butter beans, field peas, collard greens, sweet potatoes, fried okra, all washed down with some sweet tea and lemons. Plus, great desserts. Dessert, three words, red velvet cake. What more can I say? It's Nikki's West in Birmingham, Alabama, on the road with Rick. That's a wrap for today. Lots of fun talking with Anna, and I appreciate all the work she's doing for the Mike's Live Foundation. We'll catch up with you next week from the bridge.